Roughly a third of you could not sleep last night. About a third of Americans report that on multiple nights of the week that you toss and you turn and you flip and you flop in the bed and you stare at the ceiling and your mind just goes over and over again and yet you can't sleep. Have you ever been able to relate to this guy that I want to put his image up on the screen? Has this ever been your experience? Now, there's a problem with the stock image. This guy is staring at the back of the alarm clock. I find staring at the other side of the alarm clock really doesn't help me sleep at all. It's interesting that according to the Journal of Psychology, the primary reason that someone cannot sleep has to do with unforgiveness. That the biggest predictor for someone to be able to sleep longer and deeper And more significantly in their life is someone who forgives quickly and lives a life of forgiveness. That's what the scientific research tells us. In other words, you have a choice. I have a choice. We can either rest or we can be resentful. And that's the choice that we all have to make. Many of us have lives of resentment. And I love how Max Licato describes it. He describes it this way. He says, resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is when you poke and stoke and feed and fan the fire, stirring the flames and reliving the pain. I imagine you know as well as I do what a life of resentment can mean. And as we've been asked for so many weeks now to shelter in place, for many of us, our shelter doesn't feel like a shelter. It doesn't feel like a sanctuary. It doesn't feel like a safe place. In other words, I recognize that the minute we started talking about doing a series at home, that for us, the challenge is that home may not be a place that is really good to you. It might be a minefield of hurts, a battlefield of wounds. And maybe you carry a great deal of bitterness and resentment and anger with you that you've brought into this crisis that hasn't gone away as a result of this crisis. And so today we're going to talk about what does it mean to have grace at home? We've talked about lives that overflow at home with Thanksgiving. We've done this by looking at Psalm 23 and the prayer We've talked about a life of worship at home. Surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. So we started with a prayer. We turned towards a promise. And today we discover grace by looking at a parable. A parable is just a word that means a story. It's a story that Jesus told. It's a fictional story that carries a real and truthful punch. This might be the most famous story that Jesus ever told. But I find that for most of my life, I didn't really understand it. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. And so his father divided the property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property with dissolute living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. 
And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Oh, he would have gladly filled himself with the very pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my fathers have hired hands, have bread enough and to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And so he got up and he set off towards his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And the younger son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, quickly, get out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, the older son was in the field. And as he came and as he approached the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. And so he called one of the slaves over and asked him what was going on. And the slave said, it's your brother. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he's gotten him back safe and sound. And he became angry and refused to go in. Father came out and began to plead with him. But the older brother said, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never once disobeyed your command. You've never even given me as much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? The father said, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost And now is found. The story starts simply enough. There's a man and he has two sons. And then it takes a very dark and dramatic turn. This is not some teenage boy who's looking to sow his wild oats in the big city. This is not about a repressed teenager and an overbearing parent. No, this is about an ungrateful heir who goes to his wealthy father and says, I don't want you, but I want what you have. I wish you were dead. And for some reason, this father cares more about the freedom of his child 
than he does about his own well-being and his own security. And so, for some reason, this extravagant father takes what he has and divides it and gives it to his son. When the New Testament talks about the father dividing his property, it uses a very unusual word. It uses the word for bios. He divided his bios, the word we get for biology. Literally what the Greek says is he divided his life between them. Here, even at the beginning of Jesus' story, we see the gospel. We see Jesus telling of an incredible father who will lay down his life for his child. And so he divides the property. He gives it to him. And the son does something incredible in that moment. He takes his property, all of it. The only thing in the ancient world that distinguished somebody from being a slave and a free person was whether or not you owned your property. In a very short order, in a very public fashion, he sells all of it and goes away. And when he does so, he enacts something as he begins to lose his inheritance to all of the pagan Gentiles. He enacts something that according to the religious tradition of the day known as the Talmud, the rabbinical tradition of a process, that if anyone ever saw this boy again, they would do what was known as the Kitsatsa ceremony. Let me describe it for you. It is where they would take a jar of clay and they would fill it with burnt items like burnt corn symbolizing the death. And they would take that jar when they saw the boy and they would throw it as villagers before his feet, shatter it before him in the symbolism of two things. You have broken the covenant. And so you were now an orphan and you are dead to us. So when Jesus tells the story and over and over again, it talks about that he was dead and he's alive again. He was dead and is alive again. That's what that means. This is a story about two speeches and an extravagant father. And the first speech is given by the boy who all of a sudden comes to his senses and then decides to come back home. There's a lot of debate in scholarly circles about whether the speech of the younger son was sincere. We don't really know for sure. What we do know is that he never had a chance to finish that speech. For you see, the father interrupts that speech and he runs, which is something that no Middle Eastern distinguished man would do in that day and age. He runs to his son and he puts his arms around him and he kisses him and he gets a robe and a ring and sandals and he kills the fatted calf. Just as this boy's departure was public, he's going to make his return public. And before anyone can throw the jar of the kitsatsa ceremony at his feet, his father throws a different kind of party, a different ceremony that says he is mine. No longer worthy, no longer worthy, no longer worthy, the boy keeps saying. And yet the father has something else in mind. 
In the famous museum in Russia of the St. Petersburg Hermitage, there is an incredible portrait done by Rembrandt of the prodigal son. You can walk into this gallery and you can draw close and Henry Nouwen spent the better part of a couple of days just standing in front of this portrait, looking at it closely. And as he looked at it, he saw all the different characters The one that I really want to focus in on today is the one that's standing in the top right-hand corner, aloof, self-righteous, at a distance. It's the second speech. It's the older brother. And that older brother, he might be at home, but he is just as distant from the father. And so I want to take an opportunity to show you something that was a little technique that I had to learn from a mentor of mine. If you do a hospital chaplaincy, you have to do what's known as a verbatim. And a pastor mentor of mine by the name of Asa made me do this when I would do some hospital visits. You would write down exactly what you said, when you said it, to the best of your abilities, and then somebody would pick it apart in community before others. It's an incredibly uncomfortable activity because people will ask you, why did you say that? What was missing from your life? What insecurity brought you to say that? Are are you not comfortable with silence? Can we do a verbatim on the older brother's speech? Let me put this up on the screen. Even though he's his son, he says he's working as a slave. In other words, he feels unworthy. He hasn't even been given as much as a young goat, and yet all of the property of the father belongs to him. In other words, he's ungrateful. He's never once disobeyed the command. He's unforgiven because he doesn't feel like he's done anything wrong. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't call him this brother of mine. He says, this son of yours, he's trying to unrelate himself from his own family. He says that his brother has squandered his property amidst prostitutes. The story doesn't say anything about that. Now he's just making up lies. He's not telling the truth. And when he finds out that the father has killed the fatted calf, he finds that unbelievable. In other words, he believes that his father has no credibility anymore. This is the posture of that older brother standing at the side. He may be at home, but he's just as lost as the prodigal. Bernard Johnson tells the story, a true story one time of how he was in the Mall of America up near Minneapolis. This is what it looks like on the inside. In the center of it, there's like an amusement park on the inside of it. This mall is so big, it's over 5 million square feet that you can fit seven Yankee stadiums inside of it. It's massive. And so you can imagine Bernard Johnson's fear when he all of a sudden, after looking into the window of a shop, realized that his five-year-old son was gone. And they went into store after store, they retraced their steps, they split up, and they could not find their boy. After what seemed like an eternity, but was probably only about 45 minutes, after talking with all the security personnel, they heard over the loudspeaker, will a Mr. and Mrs. Johnson please come to the management office? Taking that escalator at two steps at a time, bursting into the management office, they saw their little boy sitting in a chair that was much too big for him with his little feet dangling over the hedge, holding on to a Coke and smiling and laughing. 
And it wasn't until that boy saw the look of panic in his father's face that he began to cry. In other words, he didn't know he was lost until he was found. And I wonder if that's true for you. I wonder if you need to look into the eyes of your father to discover your incredible need to be found. Several years ago, when I got started in ministry, um, I had a chance to go to one of my best friend's weddings. His name's Drew, and I had helped Drew and Laura with their engagement, and Drew and Laura had asked me at some point to be a groomsman, but even more importantly to me, they had asked to kind of help out with the ceremony. And this would have been the first time that I, as a pastor, had, even though I had done dozens of weddings, I had actually kind of helped to facilitate in a wedding for somebody who knew me before I was a pastor. And so I was so excited to kind of to play this kind of role, this kind of special role in their lives. And a little while before the wedding, I learned from the uh, I learned from the couple and say, I hate to do this, but I have to basically uninvite you from helping us in our wedding. I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, apparently, according to the tradition of that particular denomination and that pastor that, well, they don't allow any guests to help. And I said, why? And he said, well, apparently it's something to do about not being able to know about your orthodoxy. I'm like, my orthodoxy? I'll take a test. What does he want to know? Let me pick up the phone. But nothing I would say would change the situation. My wife can tell you that if you want to see me get upset, tell me that I can't do something and at the same time insult my orthodoxy. And so I really, this little seed of bitterness and resentment started to build within me. And by the time I showed up at the wedding, I was no longer grateful to just be a groomsman. I was going to give this pastor a piece of my mind. So I show up at the rehearsal dinner and, you know, my role is to stand there, you know, in a tuxedo and just be there and support my friend. But I find a way to saddle up. I'm not proud of this next to this pastor from rural Iowa in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, so did you go to seminary? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, where'd you go to seminary? He labeled some school I had never heard of before. And I remember the words coming out of my mouth in sarcasm with the bitterness behind it before I even had a chance to stop them. I said, did they have books at your seminary? And I started to lean into this and I started to lay into him a little bit. And he's looking at me of like, who is this guy? And I eventually got to the point of like, you know, how dare you not allow somebody to come alongside their friend to help out? I would have had a conversation with you. We could have talked about anything. I was not showing my best self. We made it through the ceremony, but the entire dialogue in my head during the ceremony was criticizing this pastor. I wasn't saying it out loud, but it was like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. There was a better way to do that. Oh, that was a terrible segue. Who do you think you are? What are you doing? Oh my gosh, all this is running around. I am having incredible conversations in my mind and I am winning every single one of them. Have you ever done that? Well, we get to the reception. The reception's at the largest building in the area. It's at this big holiday inn in the middle of nowhere along the highway. And, 
And Drew realizes that he hasn't asked somebody to do the prayer at the actual reception. And he jokingly asked me if I'd be willing to, to help. The food is served as kind of one of those awkward moments where everybody knows that you're supposed to eat, but you're supposed to wait to pray. And we joke about we're probably beyond the jurisdiction of this pastor and the denomination. And I get up to walk over across the dance floor to where the DJ would have been in order to do the prayer. At the same time, I see from across the room that country pastor get up. And we stare at each other like two people at the OK Corral. He's closer to the microphone than I am, but I'm younger and faster. And I make my way pushing away pregnant women and children and the elderly. It didn't matter. But when I got halfway through the dance floor, he was already at the microphone and he said, let us pray. And every head in that room bowed except for mine. All I could do was glare. And I'll never forget his prayer. The sincerity of gratitude and the simpleness of a heart overflowing with love. And all of a sudden, it was like someone had taken a spear to my soul. And I knew. I knew I wasn't worthy. I slinked into the hallway and leaned against the wall and just had to confess before God the resentment and the bitterness from such a small, insignificant thing. Here I was at one of my best friend's weddings. And I was missing it. So let me ask you a question. What's keeping you outside the party? What bitterness or pain or root is holding you back? Can you relate to the older brother standing off to the side in this picture? The role of the elder brother is to stand at the doorway of a party and to welcome each and every guest. The older brother in Jesus' story stands at the door and refuses to come in because of his resentment. That what was eating him was eating him up. He didn't know he was lost until he needed to be found. What's keeping you outside the party is probably also the very thing that's keeping you up at night. The very thing that doesn't allow us to often sleep at night is our unforgiveness, our lack of grace. We never know if the older brother goes in. We don't know. Because Jesus' story is like a cliffhanger. It just ends. And it's like he's waiting on us to see if we will go into the party, to join the celebration, the great feast 
for the people of God. For you see, the story that Jesus told at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 was to not prodigals running away, but it was told to the Pharisees and the religious leaders who used their religiosity to keep their eternal father at a distance. If I could do a verbatim of your life, your prayers, your stories, I'm guessing that you know what it's like to stand at the doorway of grace and to refuse to receive it or to give it. How would your home become a shelter if you could just get on your knees and come before your Father? So let's pray. Eternal Father, you are extravagant in your love for us. Your grace is more than sufficient. And so I pray for anyone who has resentment in their life right now, bitterness and anger that seems to come out of nowhere, even from something that shouldn't be a big deal. Lord, I am often surprised by my own bitterness. And I pray that you will help anyone listening to this message to stand at the doorway and to realize that they're missing it. And that you're begging, pleading to come inside. Help us to sit at your table, your celebration. 